Welcome to the We Talk Careers podcast brought to you by Women in ETFs. This is Christine Delano, and I'm thrilled you've joined me. Twice a month, we'll meet an amazing executive who'll share a story about her career and give us some great insight into her success. So if you are pursuing excellence in your own career or intrigued by the hustle required for a career on Wall Street, this podcast is for you. If you haven't yet, please take a moment to subscribe. Survival is essential. Success is great. But what does it mean to thrive? We've compiled the most popular and compelling advice from our guests and created a Thrive Guide with a workbook on leadership skills such as clarifying your vision and growing your influence. You can grab it at christinedelano.com. To find out more about our show and our guests, I invite you to follow me on Instagram. All these links will be in the show notes. So put aside that massive to-do list and let's get inspired. In this episode, we are talking to Alexandra Levis about faking it till you make it. When is it useful and when can it land you on your backside? There are always times when a bit of tenacity and optimism can go a long way. Alex is going to help us thread the needle on faking it and knowing how far to push our luck. Alexandra Levis is CEO and founder of Arrow Financial Communications. She is responsible for new business development, client services, and agency growth. Prior to establishing the agency, she developed and ran marketing and public relations campaigns at Global X Funds. Alex graduated with a BA in international relations from Tufts University and is fluent in English, French, and Spanish. Alex is an avid traveler and has visited over 40 countries. She is married and they split their time between Barcelona, Spain, and Miami, Florida. I am pleased to welcome Alex Levis to the We Talk Careers podcast. Welcome, Alex. Thank you so much for having me, Christine. I'm so excited to be here today. Oh, thank you for joining us. So Alex and I met through Jillian Del Signor, who graciously introduced us and was a guest on the show talking about work-life balance, I think. It was an excellent episode, and you may want to catch it, those of you listening, after this one, and I'll put a link in the show notes. So Alex, I'm looking forward to this chat. I bet everyone is well-versed in faking it till you make it, but have we really thought about how and when to employ the sometimes deceptive practice? And um, do we have risk of deceiving ourselves in it? But before we get into all that, can you share a story that exemplifies this concept for our listeners, Alex? Yeah, absolutely. So my finance career, or really my my career, um, started at a financial public relations firm in 2009, uh, about a little bit over a year after I graduated college. And I had a little bit of PR experience, but absolutely zero finance experience. I was, you know, like most recent college grads, way too cash strapped to invest. I didn't know anything about the stock market or equities or bonds or anything like that. And I obviously had to take a mandatory economics class, but I literally had no knowledge of the space. Um, And at the time, all I knew about Wall Street is that a bunch of finance speculators caused a massive crash. And my friends and I had a really, really hard time finding jobs. Mm. So on my first day at, at this financial PR firm, which again, had no training, my manager said to me, I'm going to throw you into the deep end. 
you're going to pitch one of our hedge fund clients to a derivatives reporter and see if she'd be interested in writing a story about them. Again, I, I had no clue what a hedge fund was. I know it sounded really fancy. I had no idea what derivatives were. And back then, you couldn't really hide behind email. Back then, it was customary to pitch a reporter over the phone, whereas nowadays, it's all email. Nobody has time for phone calls. So I'm sitting next to my manager, and I pick up the receiver, and very, very nervous, I'm dialing the number. And I'm realizing I'm about to sell a reporter on something that I have no idea how to explain, let alone define. And to make matters worse, my manager was sitting right next to me with his, his ear pressed to the receiver to make sure that I was doing it correctly. So no pressure at all. And I just prayed and prayed that this reporter, whose name to this day I will never forget, is the first woman I ever first reporter I ever pitched. I was praying that she was away from her desk or too busy to answer. Well, lucky for me, she wasn't. <laughs> when she eventually answered, I think it was like on the third or fourth ring, she had a very clipped greeting, which made it very clear to me that I better get to the point, I better not waste her time, and I better make it snappy. There were absolutely no room for mistakes. And I'm also trying to impress my manager on my first day. Of course. So the hair on the back of my neck rose and trying to catch my breath and I'm trying to make, you know, I'm trying to make sure that my nervousness is not coming across in my voice. I had prepared a really short, like two or three sentence script with my pitch to this reporter because I figured, you know, I could be completely uninformed, but at least I'll be prepared. And I kind of <laughs> muddled my way through it. And all I could think was, I just really hope she doesn't ask me any follow-up questions because I'm completely unequipped to answer anything else. And she paused, and it was probably like the longest pause ever. And to my huge surprise and relief, she was like, sure, very casually, you know, I'll talk to your client. It sounds like a good story. And to Excellent. this day, <laughs> Excellent. And to this day, and I think I think about this moment all of the time. It was it was like a very I was it was a very impressionable moment for me. And I to this day I have no idea which stars had to align to make this happen because you know, there's been so many other times in my career where I, I know what I'm talking about and I, I don't get it. You know, I, 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 it does not come out into a positive outcome. So, you know, in all likelihood, you know, she was half listening. She was multitasking. I said just enough of what she wanted to hear. But to me, it felt like I had pulled off an absolute miracle. And so on my first day in my career in finance, it was a lesson that taught me that once you're successful in faking it until you make it, you can replicate that over and over again until you eventually know what's going on. <laughs> what a lesson. You must have used the right buzzwords in whatever it is you it, said to her. Wow. Exactly. That's Never weird. underestimate a buzzword. I don't, I, I get, like I said, I, to this day, I don't know what it was. And it was obviously, there was a lot of luck. There was a lot of kind of beginner's luck there as well. But man, um, I figured, wow, if I can fool a reporter... I don't know if fool is the right word, but if I, if I can deceive her enough to make it seem like I know what I'm talking about and somebody who writes about the derivatives market every single day, I was like, okay, I think, I think I'm going to be okay. <laughs> well, and I really like what you said. I, I jotted down some words here. It's like you can be uninformed and prepared at the same time. So drill into that a little bit for us. Like, how did you prepare? How did you get those few sentences and still be confident of remaining sort of uninformed on the deeper meanings of the things you're talking about? Um, so I, I think 
I'm, I'm trying to remember back back to that exact moment. Um, Investopedia was my best friend. That's I had that tab open constantly. Well, like my first year of work. And so I probably did some kind of cursory Googling on what derivatives were, which again, did not, did not, did not serve me very well because I barely understood the stock market. You know, I barely understood stocks and bonds, let alone derivatives, but I had enough of an understanding of, okay, big picture concept. If I know what a derivative is, I kind of know who, what, the, what this client is doing. You know what they say, like, you don't need to understand how the sausage is made, but you, you kind of just need to know like what the flavor of it is. That's sort of where I was at. So I had kind of pieced together enough. I mean, literally it strung together about two to three sentences worth of information enough to basically script out my pitch to her. But like I said, I, I don't think I have very good advice to offer beyond that because my whole thinking was if she asked me any follow-up questions, I'm totally screwed. I don't know anything else. So my research was not very thorough. It was not very in-depth at all. It was just enough to hopefully have enough buzzwords in it. So I guess my right. thinking there was, I'm going to sound really confident and I'm going to sound like, I talk about derivatives all the time. <laughs> and so much so that she's going to know that I know and she doesn't have to ask me anything else. Right, right. Well, and I, I love this idea of this Investopedia, you know, tab open and you're like searching in and then drilling in. I, I know when I started writing and, you know, I would get to something like deep POV, which is, you know, sort of standing in for your character in a deep point of view. And so I'd like Google that. And then I would get a bunch of words that I didn't actually understand either in sort of literary definition. So I'd like drill into those and drill into those. And, you know, I'm like amassing sort of this basic idea but I'm trying to write a story, right? So, you know, I, I kind of go with what I know for a while and then realize I need to add more knowledge. I need to, you know, take a class. I need to meet with a coach. I need to meet with writing partners. And and it's likely kind of how we acquire knowledge, right? You know, it's it's hard in the beginning to keep down that rabbit hole of continuing to press into the words we don't know before we need to just get started with what we do know. So, you know, I love that sort of view of yours of opening up that tab, getting a bit of information, getting a bit more information, and then finally deciding, you know, it's it's just time to go. And especially if you're under <laughs> a deadline with your boss listening in on the phone. So that's great. That's so great. Yeah, I joke. Uh, I joke with my my uh, coworkers today that I'm going to I'm going to sit in on their calls and uh, and see how they're doing because yes. it was probably the most uh, that was the most terrifying. That's probably the most terrifying part of my job. Absolutely. I can imagine. Um, so I think everyone has a sense of this idea of faking it, right? But can you define what this really means for us when faking it till you make it? What what does that actually mean in the course of, of doing our jobs? So I think it, it, it's really, it's a phrase that, you know, it suggests that by imitating confidence and optimistic mindset and competence, a person can realize those qualities in their real life and achieve the results that they seek. Um, so this kind of idea for, for, for this topic, um, it came to me because I was inspired by a podcast you had done a while back with Kathleen Moriarty. And I actually went back and re-listened to it the other day because it was so good. And this is a bit of a different side of the same coin. Uh, the podcast you had done with her, the topic was imposter syndrome, which I think is something that you know a lot of us feel as well. 
And where the similarities are between imposter syndrome and faking it until you make it, both are really about how we think other people will or should perceive us. So, you know, in a work setting, that could be your coworkers, your colleagues, your clients, and faking it until you make it, to me, in practice, is kind of setting aside doubts of being an imposter and saying to yourself, I fully know I'm an, I'm an imposter. I have no idea what I'm doing, but nobody else needs to know that. So I think the first step is being honest with yourself about how much you know to then figure out how much you actually have to fake. As opposed to imposter syndrome, which if you haven't listened to the podcast, you absolutely should. Um, but imposter syndrome is more along the lines of, despite evidence of my competence, I feel like I shouldn't be here. I'm a fraud. And so to me, faking it until you make it is, is almost having a very realistic conversation with yourself and saying, I know I don't know this, but let me see if I can make it so that nobody else knows that I don't know this. And what I love about tying these two topics together is that the antidote to both is sort of self-reflection, right? You know, so the antidote to imposter syndrome of basically not feeling like despite the evidence that you should be there, the self-reflection, self-knowledge of what you do know and how important you are to the conversation comes through and you're able to perform faking it till you make it sort of the same way. You don't want to, you don't want to believe your own deception for too long before you're actually drilling in, getting to know, gaining knowledge and, and actually becoming competent, right? So that piece is very similar. The self-reflection is very similar to, to both topics. You agree? Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think for both, you know, they both have an expiration date. I think that's the other important thing Mm. is that these are just kind of temporary phases that that I think we go through before we become, you know, in the case of imposter syndrome, you know, fully confident or we've gotten that valid external validation. And then with faking it until you make it is getting to a point where, okay, I, I know that I know this information. People are responding well to the information I'm giving them. So you know, I don't I don't think this is a a life skill for always. I think this is kind of a band-aid situation. For when you're new or when you're starting something and, and you want to make a good impression. And, and I think it, like I said, it really does go back to the reason people do this at all is a lot of people, myself included, especially when I started my career, was so worried about how other people will perceive us, even though everybody knew that it was like my first day on the job, you know, um, but I still felt this kind of drive or this need, probably because of the industry that I was in to speak with authority, even though, you know, I couldn't tell you the difference between a, a passive ETF and active ETF, I, I didn't know anything. So, you know, when I think about the next generation here, I think faking it until you make it is sort of part of, you know, those first couple of years after college or whenever you get into a field, but is by no means, it is by no means a tenant of living that we should be doing all the time. I agree. I think that's an important distinction. In fact, I, I think many times when I'm mentoring, I encourage the person to actually ask the question, you know, like don't sit in a meeting and be lost, you know, when a well-placed sort of clarification could really answer and, you know, help them participate in the conversation that's going. But there's a fine line, right? There's a fine line of knowing when to sort of interrupt the flow of a discussion with a question and knowing that you can like jot it down, look up that word later, or when your gap in knowledge is preventing you from participating when your participation is expected. So I think that faking it till you make it 
as well as transparency of your gap is really important to discern and really kind of hard in the beginning to know when to do that. Oh, I, I definitely struggle with that at the beginning because um, I didn't know what I didn't know. So I didn't know if it was something I was supposed to know. I don't know, like, was everybody born knowing what, like, the stock, how the stock market worked? I didn't, <laughs> but maybe these other people did. So it was a lot of, like, I don't know if this is normal or not. I'm just going to have other people assume that I know it, which in retrospect is, is, is not what I would recommend. But I think it comes with confidence and it comes with experience to, to know when to interrupt somebody in a meeting and ask for clarification because you have enough confidence to say, hey, I've been doing this for a long time and I don't know what that is. And I, and I assume other people sitting around this conference table also don't know what that is. Can you please explain it? Absolutely. I'm an independent fund trustee for an ETF. And it's it's so interesting to listen to other trustees as well as myself who've been in industry for you know an awful long time and know so much, listening to their CIO speak and stopping him with questions, you know, constantly with clarification of this and what does that mean and all of that questions that probably early on in our career, none of us would have, <laughs> would have been brave enough to ask. But, yeah. you know, I think, you know, th there is a confidence that grows with knowing which questions are clarification questions that drive a conversation and which are those that may deflate because they've they've sort of backed up into something primary that you should probably look up on your own and 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 that's a that's a difficult thing to teach oh definitely that's i, I don't i don't even know if you can teach that i think that's a that's a learn on the job you know learn on the job pray you have really supportive colleagues to you know to kind of help you figure that out but especially in a particularly male dominated field, especially in a kind of high stakes environment like financial services or a perceived high stakes environment like financial services. That's really, really hard to figure out at the beginning. Absolutely. Absolutely. So do you have practical step-by-step -step advice on fake it till you make it? <laughs> um, I do. I do. And I think that, you know, this is something that a lot of us are doing anyway. Maybe we don't even realize we're doing it. But I think that there's definitely ways to kind of flex the fake it till you make it muscle. And for me, in my experience, the reason that I felt like I could get away with it for as long as I did, and to clarify to all the listeners, I I, I brushed up on all the financial knowledge I needed to do my job. But until then, <laughs> um, I really leaned on my public speaking experience. I was I was an avid high school debater. That's really how to learn. I learned how to do public speaking, extemporaneous speaking, thinking on your feet, talking about something you have no idea what you're talking about, trying to win an argument. And so in the absence of a, an industry kind of debate team, I, I, I would really say that to the extent that anybody can really focus on their public speaking. Now, that could mean, you know, volunteering to stand up and talk in a meeting offering to give a presentation instead of having your colleague give that presentation. Even if you're just at home and you're practicing reading speeches or PowerPoint decks in front of the mirror and recording yourself so you can rewatch it, which I know is like very intense and a little bit cringy, but that's what the pros do. That's a really good way to say to yourself, okay, I'm lacking confidence in how I'm being perceived. Let me film myself. Let me see how I sound. Like, would I buy what I'm trying to sell? So I think that's a really good first step it's a very kind of tactical first step in trying to ascertain, you know, what what's your level of public speaking? Because I think that is, at least again, to me, that's really one of the things that has helped me a lot in faking it until I make it. So number one is definitely brushing up on public speaking. And then the next thing that I would say is try to find an opportunity in a low stakes environment. You know, you're a guest at a wedding, you're, you're sitting with a bunch of people you don't know and you'll probably never see again. 
and take that opportunity to kind of extemporaneously speak on a topic you know little about and see how far you can get. You know, I think in those moments, um, well, in any moment of faking it until you make it, but something like that, something very low stakes where, you know, you you don't have a lot of pressure. If you focus on your tone, on your delivery, on your pausing, on your transitions, on your pace, you can kind of muddle your way through a lot of things because you're so focused on your presentation that the actual content of what you're saying starts to matter less and less. And and that's what a lot of faking it until you make it is, is can you present in a way where what you're saying is not even that important because you just kind of give us this aura of confidence. And if you're able to do that in a really low stakes environment, then maybe the next step you want to do is, you know, try it out in a meeting or trying out, trying it out in maybe a little bit more of a high pressure environment. But I think this ability to kind of extemporaneously speak and see how people react is a really, really good way to testing out you're faking it till you make it muscle. And what I love about that, when I asked you to define this topic, I wrote down these three words. You said confidence, competence, and then optimism in reference to your mindset. But I think that, you know, having an optimistic mindset and going into conversations, going into explaining a topic with optimism I think is huge, right? Um, I think people feed off that optimism. They feed off of the encouragement that that you provide when you're, you know, sort of excited and, you know, smiling and and happy about a topic. So I I love that idea of just sort of practicing the way that you speak on topics that you may know little about, um, but are ready to learn and and ready to hear back from from others at your table, perhaps. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, it's really hard to get somebody excited about something or believe in what you're saying. And even if maybe you don't necessarily believe it because you know you're faking it, but if you can try to make that optimism sort of contagious, I think that takes you probably a lot further than the content of what it is you're actually trying to say. Absolutely. So what else do you have in terms of advice for our guests? Um, and so the next, the next one is something that you know, it took me a long time to learn, but nowadays, I, you know, I, I do a lot of meetings. I, I, I get grilled all the time. I, I have a lot of practice with this, but when somebody asks a question, particularly a question I, I either don't know the answer to, or maybe I don't, I, I, it's, I don't have the best response for. Um, I think when people smile in response to right before you answer a question, I think that really projects. And I'm so glad you asked that instead of a, oh shoot, I have no clue. And so it sets up both the speaker and the listener with, I think, a thought of the next thing I'm going to say is going to be positive, positive, not necessarily positive versus negative, but positive in the sense of I'm going to project authority and credibility. And so I think smiling and kind of pausing and taking a second before answering a question, especially if you don't have like the best response to that question or all the information you wish you knew to answer that question can take you very far because it projects to the person who just asked you the question that you're cool, you're calm, you're confident, and you're not nervous and you're not frazzled. So I think smiling when somebody asks you a question and kind of taking a second before answering that question, because that's probably what somebody would do if they totally knew the answer to the question. So again, it's 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 definitely faking it. It's, it's definitely a little bit of deception there, but I think it kind of puts everybody in the room a little bit more at ease. So you sort of brought up the same word I did in the beginning, which is this kind of concept of deception, right? There's a fine line that we walk of faking it till you make it. And then knowing when we sort of pushed it too far and and we get into this sort of realm of deception. So 
what are some of the risks for this false confidence or believing your own press, as people say? You know, how can you lean into the confidence without being the emperor with no clothes in these scenarios? Yeah, and, and I think that's a really great question because I'm sure we've all sat in a meeting where we've known enough about a topic to know when somebody else is talking about it and they have no idea what they're talking about. So I think the first step, going back to what I was saying earlier, is self-awareness. You have to be very honest with yourself to know how much you know and how much you don't know. Because if you're convincing yourself you know something and you don't, the likelihood of other people picking up on it is very high. So I think it starts with knowing what you know, knowing what you don't know, and almost having a negotiation with yourself to say, okay, I'm going to take this as far as I can, but I'm not going to start to wade into like full online because that's not, that's going to bite me down the road. That's not going to get me anywhere. So it's a very nuanced, it's, it's like you said, it's a very fine line. It definitely starts with being very realistic with yourself about how much you're willing to explore a topic or how much you're willing to say on a topic. And so I think that the faking it until you make it kind of phenomenon that we see all the time and not just in financial services, but across the board is all about using this as sort of a stopgap until you accumulate enough knowledge to actually be an expert in your field. And so I, I do want to make that very clear that this is just sort of a temporary way to maybe get ahead, a temporary way to fit in, because I feel like we all just want to fit in, whether, whether we're willing to admit that or not. But it's really important that we don't want to fit in so much that we're willing to espouse information that's completely inaccurate or completely wrong. So I think the fine line becomes you fake it until you make it. But as soon as you say something that's inaccurate, especially in, in a meeting or in a room full of other experts, you know, that's your cue to know that you've taken it too far. Right. And there is so much pressure in this industry to make it seem like you know everything from day one, right? Yes. There's there's, there's not a lot of sort of willingness to let people stumble publicly through, you know, great gaps of knowledge, right? From the beginning, it is a lot of projecting this confidence. So what is something you wish you'd known about that when you were sort of younger in your career? Oh, man, so many things. I, I think the biggest thing, and I, to me, it seems so obvious now, but at the time, like, I just thought everybody knew all this stuff. And maybe it was because I was the newest member on the team. So I didn't watch, you know, I didn't watch the people ahead of me kind of stumble their way through it. But I went to meetings. I was talking to clients. I was talking to reporters when I was at this PR firm. And I was just like, man, does everybody here have like a PhD in finance? Like, is that what's required to work in this industry? And so I really wish somebody had told me one, hey, listen, everybody goes through this. Like everybody learns. We're, we're all a blank slate. You know, we all gather and we all absorb information, whether it's, you know, on the job, grad school, college, whatever the case may be. So I think the first step is really just being a little bit kinder to yourself and realizing everyone's going through this. Nobody is born with all of this information. And then the second thing I wish I could tell my younger self is, and, and it's probably, I just didn't have the tools or the confidence, but that it's okay to say, I don't know the answer to that, or I need to look into that and get back to you. You know, now fast forward almost 13 years of doing exclusive financial marketing, I have the tools and I have the confidence to say, I don't know the answer to that. And that's because probably because I've seen so much that it's, it's probably just not an obvious answer. It's probably not something that the average person can answer. 
And it might not even be something that other financial marketing experts can answer because it's such a specific question or it's not a yes or no response. And so I wish somebody had told me 13 years ago, you know, it's okay. As you move through your career, there's going to be things that you don't know and that's okay. Right. And I love that idea of I'll get back to you and getting back to people. You know, I I think that there's a lot of confidence that's built in relationships when people say they actually don't know the answer to that and actually do the research and and get back. So I agree. I think that a lot of us started our careers the same way, thinking that everyone sort of had this embedded knowledge that somehow was going to get downloaded to us if we went to the right meeting or, or clicked on the right link or something like that. But what I so appreciate about this topic is that it's something that almost everyone does when, you know, sort of beginning a new field and especially in the industry that we're in, but not a lot of people talk about it. So I appreciate your willingness to sort of break it down for us and and give us the encouragement that, you know, not only do we not all have this embedded knowledge, but that it's okay to pause a conversation, ask a clarifying question, or at certain times, just sort of go with the flow and exude some confidence and then jot that, jot that sucker down and then research it later. So I really appreciate you coming on the show to talk about this so much, Alex. Thank you. Absolutely. No, thank you. I mean, I think, um, you know, like I said, it's a little bit of soul searching to, to kind of prep for this episode and, you know, kind of bear it all and say, wow, I, re- I really didn't know a lot of things. And it seems silly to say that because most people don't know a lot of things when they start a new field or a new career. But there is just so much pressure in our space to, you know, be this kind of credible voice of authority and to, you know, make everyone believe that what you're, you know, make everyone buy what you're selling. And there really isn't a transitionary period where you're kind of trying to get your sea legs. Um, I think that's probably going to change as financial services in general changes. But I think relative to other industries, it's going to take a long time. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, We get to our final question, which is, you know, always seems to be my favorite because I'm such an avid reader and a writer. But what are you reading now that um, may help inspire our listeners? So I just started reading a novel called The Sweetness of Water. Um, I'm only a few pages in, so um, unfortunately, I can't share too much. But so far, it's absolutely beautifully written. So far, I can tell you that it takes place in the last days of the Civil War, and it centers on two brothers uh, who have now been freed by the Emancipation Proclamation. And then they end up on the land of a white farmer and his wife. It's a debut novel by an author called Nathan Harris, and I can't wait to see where the characters go. And in reading it, if I'm honest with myself, it's it's not a period I I know very much about, so I hope to learn a lot more. Well, I love that you're reading a novel from a debut author. That's so near and dear to my heart. Um, I feel like there's a huge barrier and a huge bar for debut authors to get published. You know, most books coming out of the big publishers are going to be sort of repeat successful authors because the the margins are so tiny right now on in publishing. So a debut author has probably had to go through a whole lot of hoops um, to get his book out there. So um, thank you for supporting him. And, and I plan to as well. So I appreciate getting that book on my list as well. And so we'll put a link to The Sweetness of Water in the podcast 
Thank you, Alex. I appreciate so much your time on this topic. Um, as I mentioned before, I just I think it's something that not everyone talks about, and, and we've had the opportunity today to to bust it open a little bit. So thank you so much for joining We Talk Careers podcast. Thank you, Christine. I really appreciate it, and uh, I really appreciate the space that you give women in our field to to get really candid. And I think that's that's how we're all going to grow, and that's how we're all going to improve by supporting each other. So thank you for that. Oh, I agree. Thank you. And thank you, our listeners, for spending your time with us. I hope this is not just information, but you let it be transformational in how you think about your career. I'm rooting for you. To find out more about diversity, opportunity, and events in the exchange-traded fund industry, please visit womeninetfs.com. And while it lasts, be sure to grab your Thrive Guide, on becoming the leader you want to be. You can download it at with a K, christinedelano.com. If you haven't subscribed to We Talk Careers podcast, please make sure you do so. And if there's a topic you'd like us to tackle, let us know. All links are in the show notes. Thank you for listening.